0: Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another localization news with me, Andre from localization Academy. I know I say this all the time, but I have no (laughs) idea how to start differently. But yes, this is the one this is always the latest one. And trust me, when I'm recording this, it is the latest one. So today, we have a different situation because right now it's already Friday. So I guess, absolutely, totally my fault because I missed to record this yesterday. I didn't set the priority correctly, or remind myself uh, that I normally do these on Thursdays, I was busy a little bit yesterday, trying to crack the automation of our certificates. So trying to find a way how to automate creation of PDFs, images, and even how to use the WordPress API, which I finally Made some progress yesterday and I was super, super, super happy about it. But anyway, here we are, it's Friday. and Maybe this is even better to post this on Friday because it's really kind of like a like low key effort from my side and it's not that interesting content, I would say. Although, of course, it depends on whether you enjoy <laughs> listening to me read some articles because uh, in many cases I just don't have anything useful to add or if the articles that I read to you are useful to you. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Today, we have three articles. Again, I thought that they would take a lot more time. But when I was going through the articles, right before I started recording, I don't think it will be that bad because they're not that long, I do have a lot of things highlighted. But I don't think I'll be adding that much. And the last article, well, it's kind of meh. So what we're going to be covering today is number one, how to localize emails. This is article from Crowdin. Second thing is all about the translation keys, which is something that I didn't know even what it means until recently. And this is from OneSky app. And the final one is how to translate infographics and why is it important. And this final piece is from Mars translation. So let's start with the first article, how to localize emails and run multilingual email campaigns. As I mentioned, this is from Crowdin's block. So Crowdin, if you don't know, it's a TMS, I believe a focus a lot on crowdsourcing, if I'm not mistaken. And I did try their platform once and I think their editor was one of the best that I have ever seen. Now, email marketing, email marketing is a popular way to reach out to potential or current customers and promote your business. You can make international versions of your successful email marketing campaigns with email localization to see if you can get reasonable conversion rates in other markets or try to improve current ones by localizing your email results everywhere. Okay, I guess maybe I was a little bit uh, mystifying you in the start. So I will probably have maybe hopefully something to add, because email marketing is something that I recently started learning more about. And I, I think two, three, maybe four weeks ago, maybe three weeks, I set up the first email automation. Uh, What we're using is sent in blue. That's the email service provider that gives you this option to create templates and set up this automation. And so far, I'm liking it and people are actually responding to some of the automated emails. So let's continue. What is email localization? Email localization is adapting your email marketing content to local languages and cultures so recipients can easily understand your product. It requires more than just translating subject lines and messages word for word, to make emails more likely to get people's attention worldwide and get them to act. So obviously, if we're just thinking that translation is word by word, then for email, it will not work because email, email localization is technically part of marketing, right. And for marketing, you normally expect to have some more creativity added into it. Of course, it depends on what kind of style you use for email localization. I assume that there are still companies, I mean, and it's not bad thing, that may just decide to use a very, I don't know, formal style of language where maybe less creativity is required for translation. Now, why is email localization important? Only about 20% of the people worldwide speak English well, or as their first language. Translation and localization can help you reach your expansion goals if you want to communicate well with people who don't speak English. In 2019, 3.9 billion people used email. And by 2023, it is expected that half of the world's population will have at least one email address. Okay, now, Okay, I had some water. Now, these are, of course, big numbers, but it doesn't mean you should always look at your business, and how you if you even use email marketing in the first place, because like I mentioned, I we haven't been using it for quite some time. And there are so many things that you have to think of when you're starting out when it comes to marketing, how you do marketing, and what kind of how how you communicate with your I don't know people who landed up on your website who gave you email or who are your customers. So, well, of course, the whole fact that okay, people will have email addresses doesn't mean that you need to start localizing your emails right away. What to remember when localizing emails. So uh, here we have a few things. Use plain concrete language, you might already know this is a rule we recommend for all business communications. But it's crucial when you're writing to people who speak English as a second language. So they're talking about some of the things called phrasal verbs, verbs. Some examples are look up to put up with and top up together. These groups of words mean something specific to native speakers. But even if your reader understands each word on its own, a literal translation of the group won't make sense. And here for those of you, I don't know if I'm going to put this on YouTube, there's actually a missing letter here of the group. The the of is just F in the article. So replace the phrase with a simple one word alternative like put up with change that to tolerate. Admire instead of look up to, and fill instead of top up. So, here I'm going to pause. Number one thing, I think these phrasal verbs, we were discussing them maybe, I think, one week ago. I think I've seen something like this before. I think maybe it was the slogans or taglines article from Pangea, if I'm not mistaken. But here to me, the question is. because this whole thing should be about localizing emails, right. Uh, but I guess this this part of this is this is the confusing thing, because the whole title for this whole section is what to remember when localizing emails. And this first bar, let's say the subsection of localizing emails is to use plain and concrete language. But from what I understand, you should not use this phrasal of verbs. If you're assuming that your English emails will be read by people who are not that good with English. But when it comes to localizing emails, I think you should use the language that you want to use for English. And then of course, I would assume that the translators would understand what I don't know the phrasal verbs mean, and they would adapt them to the target language. And another thing is similar to this point is that like business communication, like what does business communication mean? If we're communicating, I don't know, with my customers who may be I don't know, teenagers. <clears throat> Let's say I don't know, TikTok or typical Twitch uh, community, then of course, you're going to use, I don't know, slang words or something like that. Because that's intended, right? Even though they are technically your customers, and it's business, because maybe you generate, I don't know, money out of these young people. But it doesn't mean that I don't know, business is such a such a weird word. To me. It's like people in suits that only speak like boring British people with the perfect English that everybody can understand. And it's boring as fuck. So similar to what I was saying before, like, look at your own business like you don't have to jump into email localization right away if you're not even using emails, or if your email is not doing wonders for you in English. The same thing is here, like, like your email, language and your style should be the one that matches your business or your brand or you as people. And not because just this, not just because it's a business communication, it doesn't have to be always super plain and concrete and boring. And like I mentioned, if it is not boring, and not plain, then the localization should be able to adapt it as well, right? Because it's not the job of the source creators or the marketers to make it, I don't know, easy to translate. It's the responsibility of the translation and localization teams to make sure they adapt even the challenging things. But anyway, let's continue. Use short, easy to understand sentences. Also use verbs instead of nouns and concrete words instead of vague generalizations or abstract words. Nouns that describe an action, condition, quality, notion or emotion are examples of abstract nouns. Meeting thought, rage, freedom, study and a problem are the things that don't exist physically. What? You shouldn't use the word freedom. You don't have to ban them completely, but try not to use too many of them in each sentence, you can often change long noun phrases into verbs, making your sentences shorter and easier to understand. For example, here we have a before and after before the outcome of the meeting was an agreement to commission research into the subject of long term vitamin D deficiency to find out its effect on cardiovascular health. (laughs) After, during the meeting, we agreed to research to research long term vitamin D deficiency so we can find out its effect on cardiovascular health. Okay. Now, second subsection under localizing emails is don't forget about the design of your international emails. Email templates for people in other countries must number one, have text areas that can change. When you translate content from one language to another, the length of your sentences may change, which can affect the design as a whole. To avoid this problem, you need to use flexible text areas, not just for the main text boxes, but also for the header areas. When you translate content into a language that is read from right to left, it will also change the way it looks. Number two, skip images that have text in them. Because it's hard to translate text that's already in an image. Because you have to translate the image text and save and upload the image for each new language, it's often easier to skip these images all together. Use buttons that can take a bullet users can turn off images in most email programs. Some even do it automatically. Use bulletproof buttons instead of image based buttons to ensure your email can still be read and important call to action. Buttons can still be seen, even if images are blocked. So number one, have text areas that can change. I think this is a good reminder. I don't think I thought about it when I was setting up the templates in send in blue. But I think by default, they should be flexible. Although I think you can always since it's in the end, an HTML code, you can probably set some, I don't know, maximum height or maximum width to those things, which yes, it can then fuck up your translations if they are too long. When it comes to images, I think that's a that's a good thing to try to avoid images that have text in them because you're just complicating things for yourself because either you you would have to localize the images, or number two, if you don't, you just send them with uh, a mix of translations and English text in the images. But another thing I would maybe point out here is maybe think about whether the images are appropriate for the for the different markets, right? Because especially when we talk about I don't know, having images of people, maybe you can opt to pick uh, different people. I don't know if you are targeting Asia, or I don't know, Africa. And yes, I'm of course talking about the skin color. And finally, when it comes to the buttons, yes, I think just sticking to the plain CSS HTML code that makes it look like a typical button. So you know, typically, we see like a text which has a background, and it's rounded or not rounded. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, Instead of having that part of image, I think that makes sense. Now Here we have final list of some bullet points challenges with email localization, more languages and steps of localization make things more complicated, poor quality control process, uncertain analytics and return on investment by hand, using spreadsheets and templates to manage content voice tone, terminology, branding strategy, design, cultural nuances, and other things that don't match up. Problems with getting everyone to talk to each other at the same time, design problems like not being able to think about the character count, reading from right to left, or left to right. There are a lot of rules to follow there. On top of that, when companies try to localize emails the old fashioned way, by hand, the following things happen. For accurate translation, several people review and approve the content in the workflow. So someone is always looking for someone else to move things along. All translations are kept in a spreadsheet, which can cause files to get mixed up, have duplicates be overwritten, etc. There is a template for each locale your company supports. The stakeholders are manually reviewing, revising, retranslating and testing each locale when there are even smaller changes to be made manual translation management is slow. And if there are delays in the localization process that weren't expected, the time it takes to get to market is also slow and hard to predict. I think I should have stopped right there. Because these are more or less general things. I don't think they're related to email localization. And we're still pretty much halfway through the article. But at this point, this is where the article starts Pitching Crowdin, it introduces Crowdin as the platform, and it also talks about automating multilingual email campaigns and how you can do it with different email service providers or email automation tools platforms that you can have that you can connect with Crowdin. And the one that I'm using, blue is by the way not here. So that is the first article about email localization. Uh, I think it's not that in depth, some of the things I would say are challenging. I mean, I challenge them, right? And what else do we have here? I don't think there's anything more. So I think we can move on to the next article, which is about translation keys and this is from the block of one sky one sky is an app i think for localization probably focusing mostly on software or app localization so when you localize software you need to create a version for each market if you hard code all the translated content and switch it out every time you update the software it would take a lot of time and effort not to mention making even the smallest changes could turn into a nightmare. Thankfully, you don't have to worry about this translation keys are the building blocks of any software localization project. They can help you scale up your localization effort. So you can launch and maintain your software in the global market with ease. Find out what translation keys are and how to name, organize and manage them efficiently to streamline your localization projects. What are translation keys and how do they work? Translation keys are a critical component of the internationalization process. They act as IDs that reference pieces of displayable text, allowing strings that require translation to be easily swept out based on locale instead of being hard coded into the software. A translation key indicates where a string appears on the user interface UI, and has a corresponding value for each target language. Meanwhile, the translated content is stored in individual locale files, each of them matching a value in a translation key localized version of the software then pulls the appropriate translations from the locale file and populates the content in the UI. So, this is a quick introduction, I hope you have some idea of what this means. When I think when I was doing one of the TMS UX review, maybe more than a year ago, I don't know, and maybe it was phrase, I don't remember right now, they were talking about keys. And I had absolutely no idea what it what it was referring to. I was so confused by that. But now I actually know what it means. So it's really just like an ID that is paired with the actual string. So I'm not sure if this will help you or confuse you. So if you're I don't know, seeing a code of software, and let's say it has a button like we discussed previously in the email, because technically, in a way you can maybe think about <laughs> the the email as a software. Well, okay, that's a stupid thing to say. Um, but you have the the text on the button, right. And instead of putting, I don't know, cancel, right in the code, you say that the text that should display there should be is basically referenced by using the key or the ID, which may be I don't know. uh, form button, I don't know, 256 or something like that. And then you have a different file where you have where the software basically looks up that ID or that key, and it grabs the corresponding string and puts it let's say on top of the button or on the button. So if it's English, then it puts English and if it's, uh, if it's a different language, then it pulls the corresponding translation if it exists. Now, going back to the article, how do we name and organize translation keys? So I think this is more Related to developers, but I think it still can be maybe helpful even for us uh, in the localization because technically the way how the the developers name the translation keys can provide some context to translation. So, developing a naming scheme. That's number one. Effective translation key organization starts with naming. Every developer working on the project should follow the same logic, develop a document, develop and document a naming convention and make sure everyone on your team is on the same page. Regardless of the naming scheme, use meaningful and descriptive names at all times. A keys name should sum up the purpose of the string and what value it holds. It should be self-explanatory but not overly specific, such that a change in a key's value would require an update of the name, which requires you to find and sweep swap out all the usages in the code. Number two, use a single source language. The identifiers in your translation keys should be in the same language as the source language to keep them readable and eliminate inconsistencies in the code base. Additionally, follow this best practice for characters that can be interpreted as operators, such as single quotes, double quotes, or escape characters. Number three, apply namespaces strategically. You can nest translation keys under different namespaces, e.g. based on sections in the software to avoid name clashes. Meanwhile, the visual hierarchy can help developers easily identify them in the codebase. However, don't overuse namespaces, or you could create an overly complex structure. You can also use a global namespace for persistent elements that appear in multiple parts of the UI, eg safe or next. So you don't have to create duplicate entries that could make maintenance and updates more complex and confusing. Number four, minimize translation key duplication. Having fewer keys can save your translation time and effort. You can manually remove all duplicate translation keys and replace them with a single key or use a script to automate this process. You can also solve this problem by using a global namespace. However, don't overgeneralize since the same word could be translated differently in various target languages, depending on context. Review all the usage to ensure that you aren't impacting the user experience as you attempt to streamline the development process. Number five, stay organized as you grow. The number of translation keys will likely increase over time stay organized by storing localized content for different locales in separate files, and putting these files into clearly labeled folders, e.g. English, German, French, etc. You can also categorize translations based on function or scope. Keep your translation files clean by removing orphan keys that aren't used anymore. For example, when you eliminate all instances of a key from the codebase, delete it from your translation files as well. And that's pretty much it for this article. Uh, the final section of the article which I haven't uh, highlighted is pretty much the part where they talk about their app and how it makes everything easier. So hopefully you have learned something like I mentioned, maybe in case you don't do much of software localization. If you do, then you probably understood everything that was put here. But if you don't, I hope this was useful to you. And now let's move on to the final article, (laughs) which is called how to translate infographics and why is it important. And I will explain to you in a while while I'm laughing. So I have only highlighted a couple of things from this article. It starts very generally which I think it's is, is completely fine, explaining what are actually infographics. Fundamentally, an infographic is a visual representation of data or information. And the reason why we use infographics is to make things that are super complex to be a lot more accessible. Then the article gives some when we use infographics, and some types of infographics like heat maps and pie charts. And then it finally starts talking about the importance of translating infographics. The infographic translation is challenging. As an infographic is visually heavy with numbers and text which are small but significant. And it is essential that the infographic is recreated in different languages without disturbing any of its visuals completely makes sense. Now, how to translate infographics. And this is the title of this section, and also title of the whole article. And this is where you're going to get a little surprise, I'm just going to read it to you. So how to translate infographics. Let's take a look at how to translate infographics automatically, and without the need for any graphic designing skills just follow the process step by step. Step one, step one is to create infographics in different languages. (laughs) What? (laughs) I don't know why it starts by saying that you have to first create them in different languages. I thought that was the purpose of this uh, of this steps. First, you have to search for www.imagetranslate.com and then sign up by creating an account. Step two, step two. (laughs) So okay, and what I'm laughing is that all these steps are have titles as step one, step two, and step two, the first thing after the title is also step two. This is the step where you'll have to create a new project into image translate and add the infographic which needs to be translated. To create a new project, click the New Project button on the top right corner of the dashboard and upload the infographic that needs to be translated. Okay. Step three, select the languages to which the infographics should be translated. Select the source language, that is the language in which the infographic actually is, and the target language. This is the language in which you want the infographic to be translated. (laughs) Step four, click on the next button. And after some time, the infographic will be translated into the language of your choice. Ta-da. <laughs> so that's about it. Uh, the, the, the article is not finished, but I haven't highlighted anything because the next section talks about when you should not use an infographic. This is a general thing that has nothing to do with translating infographics, or what to watch out for. It's just a general idea when infographic is not the best thing. And then it talks about what's the most effective infographic, which again, is something that's general. And then they wrap up. And their wrap up is a summary, which is very much about infographics in general. So again, nothing specific. So the main part, which are the four steps that I just told you about, first of all, they're written in poor English. So Mars translation, I looked it up to make sure I think it's a Chinese company. So first of all, it's written in a very bad English, which is kind of funny if you think about it. Because I'm reading this from their website. And if they cannot even produce good English, then how am I supposed to trust them with other languages? I mean, like if they can't produce a good English translation or write a good English content on their own for their website? How can I trust them with my stuff? And the whole thing is just, hey, go to image which I did check because I was curious about it. And it really looks like it's a service where you just i don't know, I don't know how they do it. Because I think on the website, they promise to get the result in 30 seconds. It kind of works I don't know, like a credit base, I think it pay you pay 10 bucks for 50 images. And I'm not sure because it really, I think the, the website image talked about that it works fine with scan documents. So I'm not sure if they actually somehow automated the extraction of the of the text from the images. And then they just machine translate them. And maybe then they they put it back. I don't know. I really have no idea how it works. And I'm not even willing to try. But when I go to the image translate.com, and this is like, I'm promoting them so much. um, The logo seems to have similar colors to the logo of Mars translation. So maybe it's just their spin off company. Anyway, so yeah, this article was very poor. And when I started, I thought I would even skip it, because it probably didn't give you any, any, any idea. But yeah, that's about it. So it's 9am. Exactly. So I'm going to do my vote for this week. And definitely, I'm going to give my vote to the second article from one sky. And what I even did is because you can try OneSky for free and I have never tried it. I think maybe I'll do a UX review of OneSky and see what it uh, what it does. Final thing I didn't talk about it even though I like to talk about it is talk about the style and the design of these articles. Maybe I can do it at the end since we covered everything. So again, I would say that the OneSky app is the best one. It also has some imagery, which they created. And it looks very nice and it's super super helpful. And I like the font that they use. Their hierarchy is very nice. The I don't know, heading the, the main title of the article and then heading one, heading two, it all looks pretty good. When it comes to the crowding article, I think that one is still pretty good. They use a different font, which seems to be more—I don't know—what do you say? It close to each other, like (laughs) they're—they have more. Nah, not really. Okay, forget what I just said. That article is also pretty, pretty good, I would say. When it comes to the design style, it can still be read. Read it, although they didn't center their content. So it's kind of weird because it's on the left side. And finally, the Mars translation. I think it's okay, the font is a little bit light to my eyes. And even the hierarchy is kind of weird and the spacing as I'm looking at it right now. But anyway, I don't know why I talk about design because this part will just go to the podcast. So (laughs) that's about that. But of course, if you're interested in seeing what I was talking about, there are links below this episode for all the sources that I just read through. And you can go see for yourself, if by any chance you're interested in what I consider to be a nice blog post. And that's it. So I think I already said that I'm going to give my vote to the second one. And I hope it's going to win for this week, because this is definitely an interesting one, I think it's helpful. And I would like this to be part of our learning center. And with that being said, I uh, if you got to this point, thank you very much for listening to me. And yes, I have to say that one of the reasons why I'm doing these almost every week is partially that I'm testing it in a way. Um, this time I kind of enjoyed recording maybe I should do this in the mornings when I'm Uh, still not overthinking too much. And the second thing is that yes, I'm still not lucky with finding guests for the podcast, some of the people responded to me, but they cannot do it right now. So hopefully there will be new interviews with guests who have more to share and have more knowledge than I do. So stay tuned, and I will probably be back again next week. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Bye bye.